Hello and welcome to the Battle for Second Place edition of Political Traction. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. The race is on and we are only days away from an election result here in Ontario. Throughout the campaign, all the numbers have pointed to another four years for Doug Ford, including Navigator's own polling. And this week, I'm joined by my colleagues Mike Van Solen, Connell McDonald, and Andre Turcotte to unpack the campaign so far and weigh in on the race for second place. This is Political Traction. All right, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today I have, uh, as mentioned in the intro, a group of colleagues, um, my colleague Colin McDonald, Andre Turcotte, and Mike Van Solen, all to unpack what's happening uh, in the provincial election here in Ontario, and a special edition we're calling sort of the pushback, um, in honor of a lot of the work my colleagues have been doing on our website, uh, which I'd encourage you to check out. But one of the reasons we have Andre here, uh, who leads a lot of our polling at Navigator, is um, we've been doing some regular polling throughout the election campaign. So Andre... Uh, I thought it might be great for you to kind of give a, a top line summary of where we're at. I know we see a lot of horse race polls out there, but I know Navigators, we got our own in-house polling firm. And then um, I did want to touch a little bit on the coalition question, which I know you've been polling on. Okay. Interesting. But maybe for us, if you want to give us a sense of state of play, as we know it, is Doug Ford, in fact, running away with this election campaign? We should all stop talking now. Or is there any movement in those numbers? Well, you know, the minute you make predictions about the outcome, that's when you, you are proven wrong. But you know, at this point, I think it's kind of a done deal. Doug Ford is looking at being reelected and probably with a majority. There's been very little movement throughout the campaign. Like right off the bat, the NDP, the first week when the election was called, the NDP lost about 10 points from its pre-election uh, support. And since then, it's been like kind of like that for the whole period of time. So now it's really a, a battle for second. Uh, it's between the Liberals and the NDP, and they're very close. The NDP seems to be a little bit more uh, efficient in turning their support into seats. Uh, but it's really a battle between the two at this point with uh, very little indication that uh, Doug Ford's support will, will change. It's been at 36 almost throughout. It's still at 36, and that's probably where it's going to end up. You mentioned the coalition. Uh, so we did ask that question. Um, and, you know, kind of from my perspective, it was a bit surprising that 41% of Ontarians were kind of open to that, uh, to that idea because it's so outside of our tradition. Like we don't talk like in Europe and other countries, like everybody has coalition. They change coalitions, new coalition every day. Um, and so people were kind of resistant. And I think it's because it, it indicated a missed opportunity that there is, there is enough of a constituency there that's like an anti-dog forward. And I think that's what the coalition are, that there's enough people are angry enough that they would kind of rally over that option and don't really know why the, the Liberals and the NEP didn't kind of catch on to that. Um, so maybe I'll use that. Thanks, Andrea, as a springboard to bring in um, Colin and Mike. And Colin, I'll go to you first as our flag-bearing Liberal of, well, of sorts, at least in the past. I know you're sort of equal opportunity commentator now. Um, you know, Andre mentioned that you know, the amalgamation of the anybody but Ford folks. Um, and then we also have not a coalition per se federally, but we have this agree confidence agreement or for whatever bureaucratic term they're using up in Ottawa. Um, are you surprised? Because it's always sort of been the third rail here. It's like, and even funny when I, I hosted a panel with 
people from all three parties and are like the liberals and, and, and NDP were like, don't ask me about the coalition thing. I'm like, well, I have to ask you about the coalition thing. It's a thing. So um, do you, one, is it a thing? Uh, two, do you think the federal deal has sort of normalized it a little bit more in the amongst Ontario voters? Um, or is this just people kind of accepting that Doug Ford is going to be, is likely going to win this or is going to win this? And we've just moved on to the next possible option. So as a as a proud flag flag bearing uh, liberal, uh, I understand entirely why none of the parties, neither the NDP nor the, the liberal leaders want to be talking about a coalition because it's just not where you want people's heads at right now, right? The first, you know, to, to Andre's point about uh, the NDP losing, um, losing points almost exactly, you know, as soon as the election was called, the NDP support kind of dropped. Um, you know, the first part of this campaign, and I think a lot of us have been expecting this to be a, you know, a point that would eventually be be won and then moved on from. The first part of this campaign has all really been, been more about, uh, you know, who is best positioned between the NDP and the Liberals to defeat the Conservatives. Uh, so in that narrative and in that frame, you know, you don't want to start talking to people about, well, if we don't win, here are the other options. It doesn't, it's, 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 that's not a that's a confusing narrative for people and it's not something that makes a lot of sense, especially because coalition is something that gets sort of thrown around both positively and negatively in our in our political culture. And as Andre said, right, it's not something we're terribly familiar with. So because of that, it gets thrown around a ton. People mistake, for example, the supply and confidence agreement in Ottawa is not a formal coalition, but you know, the formal coalition out in BC didn't last as long as it was like there's just a lot of confusion in the air when we actually talk about coalitions. Uh, and some people forget that, you know, our history of minority parliaments is much more likely to just be, you know, one party just sort of dares the other parties to vote them down on a on a vote by vote basis. And, you know, Stephen Harper, uh, for one, and, and, and uh, Dalton McGinty, uh, for another closer to home, both managed to govern for periods of time, just essentially doing that. So I don't I don't see any reason why they would talk about it. Um, I don't think it's uh, it serves them much benefit to, to muddy that water. Uh, and I think the NDP, you know, part of the problem of all of this is the NDP turned their attentions way too early to the third party as opposed to actually trying to defeat the government. Um, and I think that's really played out poorly for them. And for them to go further than that now, focus even more on what they could do with liberals would be a, a really, so I think, a bad strategy. Like, maybe I'll... I'll pick up that point because I think it's an interesting one. I mean, we can hash over coalitions, but I think we're all in agreement. It's probably not going to happen. And given Ford may or may not have a majority, it doesn't seem to be that much of a credible threat to my mind. Um, but Colin points out his from his perspective that the NDP turned their attention to fighting the Liberals too soon. And in fact, they didn't throw in hard enough against the Premier. Um, I mean, we, we've watched this. The Premier has a sort of like Teflon-esque shit just bounces off and goes away. It's very similar to the prime minister, frankly. It's like nothing sticks. And he also, it's been observed by others, not myself, but I agree with them. He also has this weird ability. I've never seen a leader. He's like, man, that government's silly. And it's like, it's your yeah. government. <laughs> what do you mean? You, it's no, you're silly. Like, why are you talking about it as if you're like a phantom observer? Um, so do you think, I've, I've noticed, I felt like these, like they haven't been hard enough on him, frankly. Like if it was me, I would have had Andrew Horvath. I would have been in front of long-term care facilities with grace, like fake little gravestones being like, these people died and this is Doug Ford's fault. Like I would have done stuff like that or had poor Mitzi, which we'll talk about later. But do you think that the NDP did shift too soon to, to, to attack the liberals? Like what do you make of all that? 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I see it exactly the same way Colin does. It it, it strike. It, it looks to me like Andrea has tried to be an equal opportunity, um, uh, equal opportunity attacker on the on the campaign trail, going after both Doug, and and the Liberals. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure the Liberals would feel like, why, why are you even paying any attention to us? All, all your energy should be directed at uh, the one uh, Mr. Uh, Doug, uh, Doug Ford. So, uh, so I think they've tried. I think to your point, though, I would agree that I'm not sure that they've been aggressive enough or really been able to land punches. And in part, that's Ford's, um, uh, Ford's personality, the way you describe it. You know, yes, he is a bit of the Teflon Don, and he has this sort of all shucks, all shucks personality, which really just allows him to roll off questions and, and attacks uh, pretty effortlessly. So it's quite something to see. And, and I think his coalition, you know, he's not, he's not locked into some conservative ideology that, uh, you know, people could pu push hard on him to, to you know, say, well, what do you really believe or what will you really do or where's your secret agenda? Because he's more than willing to go, you know what, I've talked to a bunch of people and you know, that proposal I had, you know, maybe didn't make sense. After all, I'm going to do something different. So, I mean, how do you attack that? Um, but, you know, I think what's interesting to me is uh, people have talked about the NDP vote really collapsing. And, uh, you know, that seems to be so, sort of just general conversation out there. But I look, you look at the numbers and they really are neck and neck with the Liberals. And, and you know, Andre makes the point that their vote's really efficient. So it's, it's really not clear to me who's in second place in this election. Uh, so I'm not ready to suggest uh, Andrea's strategy has been, been that poor because, um, uh, you know, the Liberal brand is strong. The, the floor for the Liberal brand in Ontario is pretty high. Uh, and she's, she's fighting away in her, what, fourth election and um, seemingly attracting, attracting some attention. Andre, maybe before we move on to the next topic, I did just want to, like you did mention that and Mike picked up on it, that the NDP vote, like it, it is about, it's a real battle for second place. Because the narrative now is the NDP have cratered Andrew Horvath's going to lose her job. And, you know, but that is not what you're seeing in the numbers. I mean, the same thing happened at the federal level. I mean, what between election, people are very comfortable parking their vote with the NDP. So they were at like 35% just prior to the red. And then I think that creates, I'm sad to say that they don't know this, but it creates expectations that are really not substantial because it, it always happened. It, it, it changed their perspective at the federal level. It changed perspective that they thought they were really within striking distance of, the, uh, of Doc Ford. And when in reality, it was just a parked vote. So I think that's part of what the dynamic happened is that they kind of took that for granted when in fact it was really thin and it disappeared within a week. I just want to add about the Teflon uh, dog Ford. Uh, I agree, but I think, I don't think he has, I, I don't think we should give him that title right away because he hasn't really been tested. He gets rattled very, very quickly, you know, and kind of muff, mumbles and all that kind of stuff. And I think they haven't really kept the pressure as much uh, on him that they should have. And uh, before we give him like the the title, I think we should kind of, it would have been nice to see him tested more uh, aggressively, let's say. Just one thing on the, on the, on the NDP strategy, just real quick. I just think it's, it, it has to be, I mean, we'll see election day, uh, as they say, it's the ultimate poll, but they came out, if you remember, like a couple of days before the campaign was even, was even officially launched, they were putting uh, senior NDP staffers up to including the campaign director, uh, Ms. Horvath's chief of staff, out to media availabilities 
and they were focusing all their attention on how they are best positioned to beat the, the, the Tories over the, over the Liberals. And all that did is it set up a question between NDPs and Liberals and didn't really, it just kind of disregarded the question between NDP and the government, right? I think, I mean, well, we, I could be proven wrong, but I think, you know, the way that the NDP has squandered four years in opposition uh, and sort of lived into this campaign uh, is going to be a real, like, that'll be the story of this, uh, of not only this election, but like the mandate that preceded it, because they came in on a real, a real, you know, they left that 2018 election super strong, stronger than they've been since the early 90s. And, you know, unless something dramatic happens, they've really blew the whole thing. Um, I do want to flip, speaking of NDP and liberals and things like that, obviously unions have been sort of a bastion of like kind of, well, NDP and then more, I think liberals sort of stole a bunch of those from the NDP. And then we've seen the Ford government kind of steal a bunch of that. And obviously we've had, a, I think, a bit of a recalibration in there in that the public sector unions have had leadership changes and now recently realigned with liberals or progressives. Uh, but we've had a, a suite of private sector unions come out and I think a very smart communications play to be candid, um, endorsing the Doug Ford conservatives, which is setting up this narrative because there's nothing else to really talk about right now that like the unions are flocking and there's this like blue collar lunchbox group that are, is this, and I guess my question first is, and maybe I go to Mike, um, do you think this is, is this a Doug Ford phenomenon? And I also do want to give credit to Monty McNaughton who like everyone's talking about Premier Ford, but Monty, um, the Minister of Trade, has been like working those relationships and working this stuff and worker for workers and his team has rolled out all these policies. So like all this doesn't happen without Monty. But is this a Doug Ford thing? Or is this a we are realigning conservatism as we've seen in other jurisdictions to appeal to that vote, which frankly, a lot of conservatives argue we should have. That being said, knowing that other leaders have tried it, for example, Aaron O'Toole really tried hard. I'm the kid from Oshawa. My dad worked on the line and didn't seem to work very well for him nationally. So I don't know, like realigning of conservatives or Doug Ford phenomena and they'll go poof once the premier disappears. Uh, I do think it is reflective of where sort of modern conservatism in the, next, in the coming years probably needs to get to. I think cons the new co conservative coalition probably needs to include private sector unions and, and work, you know, blue collar workers, uh, really just to get to the to, to the chance of having a better, a better shot at, at winning uh, elections uh, because you know, if you don't have the urban vote, um, if you you struggle, you know, from election to election in the 905, you know, taking an Ontario centric view right now, um, I think it becomes, you know, just the rural without the the, the blue collar worker doesn't get you there. So, uh, you know, this has been a very successful four year effort by the by the Ford government, and, and you're right to highlight Monty's work in this uh, to to get to this point, and it, it looks to be uh, proving pretty fruitful. Um, as far as it a Doug Ford, so so I think he is doing it well. I think he is he is doing uh, a good job. Uh, he you know he he has understood the benefit. Uh, you know the carrot. You know hanging out there if you could get the private sector unions on side, and I think it's playing out. And and it's um, you know the general people not involved in unions or manufacturing may not think it's a big deal, uh, but it is a big deal. It's a lot of people just on its own, and the organizational power, of course, that those unions would bring to you know, particularly election day is, is, is big. And I want to, I want to ask Colin about the organizing, like the election day stuff and the even pre-election day stuff. And I will say it's, it's interesting. I, I would like to see reshape. I think the modern conservative movement, I think to frankly, the conservative movement to sustain itself and needs to get beyond a very shrinking base. Um, 
when I have spoken to some of the labor leaders about this, like they've said, well, it's because I could look the pre like I could look Doug in the eye and shake his hand and know his, you know, all that kind of shit. Um, but we'll see if that plays out. But Colin, when I worked on um, a municipal campaign, which shall remain nameless, uh, but I was there was liberals and there were conservatives and there were people of all stripes. It was like a Noah's Ark of campaigns, and these union group would show up and just grab like piles of signs and piles of stakes and all of the arterial signs would get done and all of these polls would get knocked and as a conservative who'd never seen this in my life i was like sweet lord this is how you guys kick our asses all the time so, so i know obviously there are you know there's carpenters there's a una there's all kinds of there's inter fighting factions and and um Stephen Del Duca is affiliated, I think, quite closely with the Carpenters, is my understanding. But if we could just take it up 10,000 feet and just explain to some folks who maybe have not been inside a liberal or an NEP, like, what impact does unions and labor actually have on the ground? How, like, how helpful are those endorsements? Because they may seem like one day news days to like some folks, but they're, from what I've witnessed, they can be, depending on the size of the union, they can be quite instrumental in helping. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that the, the real difference here, um, and I, you know, Andre might know this better than me, but I don't think it's actually, this actually signals a real mind shift in terms of the rank and file membership, right? I think, you know, <clears throat> for generations now, you could go to a place like Oshawa or Whitby with big union town, Windsor, and there would be conservative uh, MPPs or, or conservative MPs who would come out of those, come out of those communities and, and be relatively strong. I think the difference is, uh, when the leadership gets on board, right? So when you go from the individual rank and file member, <clears throat> excuse me, who's thinking about all kinds of things uh, uh, that may in fact lead them towards, uh, you know, voting for a conservative uh, candidate to the leadership who are very tightly focused on those health and safety things, those labor things, those uh, employment standards pieces. And, and that's the huge shift. And that's what then brings the organizational heft, right? So that's where that's where I think the big difference comes in is that when the when the leadership gets on board, so in, in the case of uh, of the conservatives and the endorsements that they've that they've achieved here, is the leadership when they get on board, they're able to mobilize uh, all those people and flood them out into into strategic uh, ridings and try and make sure that their boots on the ground, for lack of a lack of a better term, uh, are equal to the kind of the heft that they've promised when they when they agreed uh, to make the endorsement. So I do think it's a shift. I don't think it's unique to Doug Ford, to be honest. I think we've seen. Um, you know, conservative movements uh, or conservative parties um, in places like the UK under Boris Johnson, you know, the more that the conservative party stops being about being small c conservative and starts being about being populist, uh, the more that um, conservative parties will attract different groups. And I think, you know, and I don't think this is, this is, this isn't controversial. I think it's increasingly clear to everybody that big C conservative parties are no longer necessarily small c conservative uh, movements they're they're increasingly populist movements um that take on um you know issues of issues of of, of the day if i could just comment on i totally agree with colin and i think that vote is more available to conservative more often than we think but it's a matter of the leadership i mean you can go after these votes and i'm not disparaging former leaders but ernie eves does that doesn't work right like you don't tap into these available votes with a leader like Ernie Eves or John Tory. And whether it's the Doug Ford phenomenon or not, Doug Ford fits the moment. And that those votes are available. And that's why I think they're getting it, because the leadership is 
projecting an image that is uh, very um, friendly to uh, these voters. So um, it is a matter of concentrating on those votes because they are available from time to time. Um, just keeping in mind time, I did want to get here and I'd like us to all have a moment of silence for Mitzi Hunter, who had to do a, a painful photo op. <laughs> um, and I know Mike did, a, Mike and Andre, and they did, there's some analysis of this, which you guys can get into the effectiveness. And this is not just, and this is not targeted at Mitzi Hunter. All campaigns do these things at some point. Um, I, the conservative I think one of the worst ones I've ever seen was the, as we will all remember is the barbaric practices like hotline that the conservatives did, which it lives down in infamy. So some of these are really bad. Um, but uh, maybe like Mike, I'll go to, cause you actually did some analysis of the effectiveness of this. Um, sometimes they do work, but yeah. this one does not. Yeah, thank you. No, this one did not work. Um, there's this old expression in the 90s, uh, you know, which was NBC and it was must see TV. And this was this was far from must see TV. No one was interested in it. Uh, she she um, was met with a lot of sort of scorn online and it really didn't even translate over to mainstream media. So it was an attempt to, uh, of course, uh, launch an attack at the conservatives. Uh, they, they were pretty quick um, and, and how they the Liberal War Room hadn't thought this through. Uh, they were pretty quick to be able to throw back examples of the Liberals doing the very same thing. So, you know, at most it was a pox on all houses and it increases the cynicism all Ontarians must feel about uh, politics uh, for it. Uh, but, it, you know, it just... Uh, there's nothing worse than being, you know, during a provincial campaign or a federal campaign, and suddenly the the bat phone from uh, the central campaign calls, and there's somebody with this great photo op idea that they need you to do in two hours, and then they describe it to you, and you know, the, all the uh, all the color drains from your face as you realize you got to walk over and tell your candidate what you're doing that day. Um, so, so often, uh, you know, central campaigns, you know, God bless them. They do a lot of great work, but they also have some crazy ideas that they then, uh, you know, throw off to, to the small, uh, small campaigns and hope they'll land a punch. And if it doesn't land, it doesn't, you know, they, the, you know, the, the leader themselves hasn't, uh, hasn't lost anything for, for the process. So, um, Anyways, the, the Liberals, uh, it was a swing and a miss on this one, uh, but uh, we've all been there. So um, so uh, my sympathy to all involved. Um, uh, Colin, I wanted to ask you, like, you know, this aside, obviously you're welcome to defend the gravy train photo op if you wish, by the way, <laughs> if you want to. Um, but I was gonna kind of take it up 10,000 feet a little bit and ask, um, have there been any moments in this campaign where you've been super impressed by war rooms or, or some of the, the rapid response we've seen out of maybe the Liberals or the NDP or the, for one, I've been pretty impressed by the NDP war room, which I find routinely is pretty good at like oppo and messing about. Like they had three days in a row where they were getting candidates knocked off and, you know, going through, you know, I think just doing the, the good work that war rooms are, whatever, I guess we're not allowed to call them war rooms anymore, but whatever they're called. Um, are supposed to do. But have there been any standout moments for you in this campaign other than um, poor Mitzi Hunter and her gravy train? So, and just on the Mitzi, on, 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 that, on that piece, I will say, I think uh, sometimes these things don't, they don't come off, but uh, every campaign is always just trying to do, you know, death by a thousand cuts, right? Like where can yeah. we grab them? Um, you know, conservatives love to, to paint a narrative about liberals in terms of how they, how they act when they're in government. And I think this was an attempt to demonstrate that, uh, Conservatives are um, 
you know, there's there's hypocrisy in, in how they and uh, how they approach that topic. Honestly, I think like I, I do think each of the I'm not, I'm not trying to hedge here. I think each of the campaigns has actually done uh, in terms of their war room or strategic response room or whatever the appropriate title is now. I think they've actually executed relatively well. I think. Um, you know, I just think about the way that, and I don't know how much credit to give the conservative war room for this. Um, I don't know how they're, I don't know who the, who the ultimate Doug whisperer is, but the way that they've been able to sort of keep him as like sedated Doug and just keep him from kind of uh, reacting to his uh, more natural inclinations, I think is, um, is pretty impressive because that really is, I, I think that's the big thing to, to come, right? Like there's whatever days, there's 10 days or a week or whatever is left. And really the big thing that could unseat uh, the, the current uh, Tory lead is, is Doug being Doug. And, and they've done a really, you know, they appear to have done a very good job of keeping Doug from, from being Doug. And I think there's probably as much as that, you know, gives me great pain to give, to give the conservative war room uh, credit for anything. I think there's probably some skillful uh, negotiation that's gone into that. Yeah, I, I keep wondering if they're going to send him on a northern tour for the next 10 days. He's <laughs> like, oh, he's so sorry. He's lost cell service in Thunder Bay. We can't find him, but we'll talk to you in like two days. Like, I, I, I'm surprised they're not they're, they're not giving him COVID for the next like, you know, two weeks. Like, <laughs> I, thought just... about, I thought about that too. I was like, if any leader wants COVID right now, it's probably Premier Ford so that he doesn't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> sorry he's really sick we're just but put somebody else up um Andre you mentioned that numbers have been steady throughout broadly so you know we've all been in war rooms and central campaigns and you know local writings and you kind of get this fog of war situation where like every media statement is like a big fight but if we step back from this or like leave the fog of war are we saying for all of the muckracking that's happening it's not really impacting what you're seeing the polling numbers like nothing no i think people have kind of locked in into their decisions um not totally sure how much attention they're paying i mean we are and obviously uh, all of our listeners are awaiting our commentary but you know the general population is probably not focused too much on that and uh, i can't see what could derail um the dynamic right now i mean and I don't want to, I want to be nice to call in for a minute and the liberals. I mean, we lose sight though, that at the end of the day, they're going to triple their, probably triple their seats, you know? And yeah, we could talk about dog, talk about all that kind of stuff and he's going to be reelected, but I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that I think the campaign won the first two weeks. Like they were really, really efficient and effective at getting attention. And I think that's what they needed to do. All these crazy policies they had, which I don't know where they're coming from, but it got them attention. And after that, I don't think they knew what to do with the attention. But for that, I think they established their leader. And, you know, uh, when it's all over, I know moral victories don't count much in anywhere and not in politics, but we, we should lose sight of that, that they will probably triple their number of seats, which is not something to, you know, dismiss. So with that in mind, um, I did want to, this last kind of segment, wanted to ask you all, like, what should we expect? I do think Andre makes a great point there um, that the Liberals were not even an official party status. Like, and like, and Colin's talked about this too, right? The NDP had, there's a lot of funding that comes from being an official party, let alone the opposition, which 
the liberals did not have access to had a lot of debt um I, like i know from friends on that campaign it's like everybody is a volunteer <laughs> um so you know it's it's a bit remarkable that they're pulling off what they're pulling off with the resources that they have especially given the nature of the party's history um so we should doff our caps for sure for that um there's only up from here is what i was saying at the beginning of this but um i know we haven't heard from you in a bit mike so maybe i'll go to you first i think it's going to be more of the same i i think we can expect uh, what we've seen in the last three four weeks just to to play out for the for the following following whatever it is seven ten days you know, the, the interesting thing was that the, the Ford government had the confidence on day one to uh, to run a pure front runner campaign. Um, and, and uh, you know, there, there's there's a danger in that, you know, where, where you have the confidence, um, where, where you act like a front runner and an incumbent and you're not aggressive enough to defend uh, defend your case and make your case to voters uh, to support you. Uh, but the strategy looks like pretty sound and I don't see why they wouldn't roll that through until election day. Um, polling looks tough for Del Duca in his riding, but uh, as the point's been made, you know, they're going to, they're going to return to a more traditional sort of level of support in the province. Uh, I'll be really interested what happens with Andrea. Uh, you know, it's all going to be about splits. They're, they're going to get lots of votes, but it's all how the splits work out um, as to, uh, as to what the future, I suppose, of both leaders uh, may be after election day. Colin? Yeah, so first of all, I think Stephen wins that seat. Um, you know, he won it by 20,000 votes, uh, not this last election, obviously, uh, but the, the election prior. Um, and, you know, the fact that Doug Ford was there as recently as a couple of days ago tells you that despite what they're saying publicly, they're very nervous that their thrice demoted uh, minister uh, who, who, who lives in that riding, who's running in that riding, uh, isn't uh, going to be as convincing to their friends Thrice and neighbors demoted. As, as, as Stephen is. Uh, so, let's, so let's put that to bed. I think Stephen wins that riding. Uh, I'd like to say that I think, and I don't, I don't mean any malice by this, but I'd like to say that I think Andrea um, will not uh, retain her, her job because um, four elections and four losses is is pretty wild. So for a party to want to wanna go for a fifth doesn't seem to indicate much ambition, um, but I don't, I don't pretend to have any great insight into that. Uh, and I think, um, to Mike's point, I think the splits are going to, you know, across, you know, really all across the province, with exception of a, of a few ridings, I think the splits are going to be uh, super consequential on election night and, and watching that um, play out on election night is going to, on election night is going to, um, is going to be very interesting for those of us who, who watch such things. Andre? Well, I know you're going to do this to me in four years. You're going to re-roll the tape again, but I'm going to be provocative and I'm going to say in 2026, we'll have two, if not three new leaders. And that's going to be a whole different campaign then. I don't think, I think both the Liberals and the NDP will change their leaders. And I'm not sure Doug will win for a third time. So, Ooh. and you did, can did roll Andre the tape. Andre just pronounced the death of my trainer right there? Prove me What's wrong. going on? <laughs> We even talk about the beloved green leader who's like tootling about just spoiling debates. But anyway, who may win? What do you think? You're going to win the Muskoka seat? It's like, all right, we'll see. Um, all right. Well, we are uh, fresh out of time. Um, Colin, Andre, and Mike, thank you so much for joining for this special Ontario votes edition of the podcast. And um, maybe we'll gather y'all back after the results. And we will, in fact, play back this tape to see if everybody's. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye. 
Political Traction is hosted by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show is produced by John Gardner, Matthew Barnes, Adam Owen, and Thomas Ashcroft. A very special thank you goes to these week's guests, Mike Mansolan, Colin McDonald, and Andre Turcotte. To learn more about the pushback, visit www.navltd.com forward slash the dash push dash back. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate us online wherever you find your podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Traction Polly. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We'll see you next time.